I found a really beautiful and comfortable place with the Acton School of Business. They basically teach in a Socratic manner. That means they don't answer any questions. Everything is a discussion among the students. The program has been ranked the most competitive MBA program in the country for the last for six, seven, eight years. So we have some of the most amazing Olympic athletes, Navy SEALs, and really competitive business women and men who come to learn. And all I get to do is ask them questions and listen. It's heaven for me. It's such a contrast to this idea that somebody else has the answers for you. Any of the answers to any of the questions you have really are on the inside, not somewhere else. So now I think the world has this next chapter of opportunity of how can we find our area of genius, which is what is an activity that you do when the time flies, you can't count it, and you are more energized when you're done. And then can you spend most of your time in that area? That's Tim Nikolai, one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. Tim was a successful Cutco sales rep who became a prolific real estate investor, accumulating over 500 rentals by the age of 35. Now, Tim teaches three classes in the MBA program at the Acton School of Business, where he was recently named Teacher of the Year. You can't have a conversation with Tim that isn't thought-provoking and inspiring, and this conversation is a perfect example. Get ready to have your mind stretched, your limitations exploded, and the path to your own genius unlocked. This is my friend, the amazing Tim Nikolai. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Tim Nikolaev, and he is one of the most interesting guys that I have had the good fortune of meeting. Tim and I met through the Front Row Dads group that we are both a part of, and uh, found out Tim was a former Cutco rep, started selling Cutco in 2001 in Topeka, Kansas, uh, during his college career, and shortly thereafter, Tim sold Cutco, sold about $368,000 at Cutco during those years, so did a really solid job. Most of that was in Kansas. He sold a little bit in New York City as well after college. He went to the University of Kansas, the Jayhawks, and Tim got into real estate investing uh, not too long after college and built an empire for himself through that process, basically retired from traditional work through his success in real estate investing. 
Tim also teaches in the Acton School of Business in their MBA program. He was the teacher of the year in that program. So he has a lot of great insights that he can offer both personally and professionally. So I'm highly looking forward to this conversation. Tim Nikolai, thanks for making time to be on the podcast. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. Thank you for the invitation, Dan. Yeah, awesome. Well, let's start by having people hear a little bit about your personal background, Tim. I'd like people to get to know you. And I think you have a pretty fascinating personal story. So why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about uh, your personal background? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to dismell all of those myths about any insights because uh, the school that I teach at is based on a fully Socratic method. So the only thing I can do is ask questions. So I'll probably ask you more questions than I provide any answers. I'll, <laughs> tell, you, I'll tell you any background about where I came from and, and how Cutco has influenced my life. I grew up in Moscow, Russia, and uh, I was going to go to college there. And then one day my mom said, hey, why don't we move to America? To which I, uh, you know, that's something I did not want to do. But my mom used the good old trick of, let's go try it out. And if you don't like it, you know, you can always return it. <laughs> and, uh, and I totally bought it. And uh, we moved to, uh, you know, to Topeka. And I ended up going back to high school again after graduating in, in Russia. And uh, that was a challenging experience, uh, you know, because it was just a big reality check of Moscow, which is 12, 13 million people, to the city where I actually lived was about 350. So it was quite an adjustment. How do you choose Topeka? Like, how did that even happen? Right. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the second question everybody asked. My mom, she was working and doing some business with adoption agencies and going back, you know, going back and forth between the U.S. and Russia. And she ended up meeting somebody and, uh, and she got remarried. So, and my stepfather's business was in Topeka, Kansas. So that's kind of how. Got it. Totally random. Yeah, totally random. And my dad used to, used to have a car lot where he would sell used cars. He's done really well. And I um, got fired one day for fishtailing a Camaro uh, when I was taking around the block and bringing it back. So <laughs> <laughs> so that really what opened up my opportunities and, you know, with Cutco. It was not much music, but uh, my mom gave me a flyer and I went uh, for an interview. And I have a lot of credit to give to Jeremy Couch, who was my first manager. He put gas in my tank when I didn't have any money and hired me and really kind of a give the short of your back of a guy uh, that I that I really love. So that was the beginning. That's awesome. How did you get into Cutco? I was wondering, okay, what can I do for work? And I was really good with computers. So I went to Circuit City and applied and they did not hire me. So uh, the second option was this flyer that my mom picked up in a parking lot of uh, somewhere. So I just went out and I was just naive enough to not question anything. And that was, uh, I think, really a wonderful beautiful gift. I had no skepticism going in. I just assessed it energetically. I trusted Jeremy and I just did everything he said. So I was really good at that early on, I think. That's so interesting that you say uh, just naive enough to not question anything. I think that encapsulates a lot of the young people who at 18 or even 17 years old start working in Cutco is that they're willing to learn and willing to listen to guidance from somebody. And that by and large, the people they're listening to in Cutco are people who have done what they're teaching, have succeeded already. And so, you know, they're following a path of somebody that's already done it. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. What were some of the transformational experiences from your time with Cutco that really stand out? I was thinking about that when you asked me at first. And I think I have a fairly good summary 
I went into it with two beliefs. One was you from my mom is whatever you do, you got to be the best at it. So do the best, absolutely the best that you can. And the second one was if I just find out what you're doing and if I copy exactly what you're doing, I will do at least just as well. I think those are two foundational beliefs that really allowed me to kind of uh, say, hey, all I need to do is find people that are doing well, copy what they're doing, and I'll be okay. Right. Those are the two things. And then steps from there, you know, um, I was in the central region because of Vector Connect and some calls. I, I just started learning from all of my, uh, all of the people who are now my friends that I've never met then through audio recordings here and there. So there are several moments, you know, that's totally changed my life. And I, you know, I wrote them down uh, and I'll just quickly go over that time John Berger broke the record, right, for SC2 push, selling like $80,000. And mm-hmm. one of the things he said is, when I am in the push period, I listen to Jim Rohn's Power of Ambition on repeat the whole time. So I didn't really research, question, or ponder it. I just said, oh, I'm just going to do the same thing. And uh, that's, that was a foundational changing experience in terms of building a personal philosophy that I was able to learn from not by reading his book once, but by listening to it over and over and over and over. And mm-hmm. that was a choice when I stopped listening to music in my car. So the, we called it University on Wheels, right? Or something like yep, that. Yep, exactly. So that was the first one. And then the second one was when I got my first 10K push. And I know that for some people it's a big deal, but for us in Midwest, you know, at 100, whatever, 80 average order, it was not the easiest thing to do. Or at least it wasn't for me. But Hal Elrod's miracle equation was li- literally changed my life at the moment. He said, unwavering fa- faith and extraordinary effort. And it was basically, I continued to work even when rationally I didn't think what I was trying to do was possible. And I was at my customer's house, $600 short, going straight to the bus to go to Chicago. And she picks up the phone, makes a phone call to her friend, and puts me over by $30. And I never would have planned it, never would have imagined it, but because I worked till the last second, it happened. And there was just a shift in my thinking about that anything is possible. Anything is possible. And I lived it. And then from then on, that's kind of how I started approaching goals. So, and uh, do you remember when John Rulin started selling all his crazy numbers? Uh, Yes, of course. Uh Uh-huh. So he's just a big teddy bear, right? A, A teddy bear with a bunch of love. And I somehow got this Hotmail hotmail email address, and then I chatted him over Hotmail, and I basically talked him into allowing me to come and see him in Cleveland. No, well, not Cleveland, Akron at the time. And um, there are so many stories about what John was doing, where he had 17 assistants, and he was running this empire. And then he was an hour and a half late picking me up from the airport. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, one of the best lessons in all of those things. I mean, I love John and he's genius at what he does. And once I saw him, I'm like, hey, if he can do it, and if I do exactly the same thing, I can do too. And I think I was one of the first people to start to do corporate gifts in the Midwest and it worked out well. Yeah, that's cool. Did you meet Berghoff and Hal during those days? No, I feel trained with Hal. I flew out to Sacramento. I've done a lot of that in my career. I flew out to, uh, to Sacramento and basically, Hal booked appointments just because I came. Uh, we wanted to see one of his, you know, one of his realtor customers. You know, he sold a couple of grand, and you know, we hung out. But it was the same experience. It was twenty percent learning from the person, eighty percent being, "Hey, I can do this too. Not a big deal." Right. 
you never met Berghoff during those days? No, not for a while. <laughs> but he was a significant influence on you. So, wow, Berghoff cool. ended up coaching me, actually, in the best two months of my career, he ended up coaching me. Hal Berghoff and I went for a training together, uh, coaches training. And he coached me for the last two months. And one of those months, I think I broke a national record. I don't know if it stands anymore. Probably not. But so Berghoff had influence very late, kind of one-on-one in my career, mostly remotely for his voice. So, Yeah. Wow. I didn't know any of that stuff right there about your sales career, Tim, and, and yeah. the fact that John and Hal and, and John Rulin all played a role in that. So that's a pretty amazing trifecta of people that have had influence you. Cool. There's many more. Yeah, yeah, there's many more. But, uh, you know, those stories, I think I was just this naive kid who was like, hey, can I come and learn? And they nicely said yes. So, yeah, that's awesome. Any other lessons that you feel stand out from your time with Cutco? Yeah, just as much as I learned from these incredible guys and, what, and women who sell, I learned probably more from my customers. And I got to a pretty quick formula. I would basically show up to the house. And I would ask questions, very specific questions, and listen very carefully. And I learned how to sell exactly what I thought, based on those questions, with my experience, they needed in about six minutes. So, And then I would spend another 54 minutes, or however long, asking them questions about their life. Mm. So, And usually it was, I would talk to them, ask questions, learn everything that I want for myself that was interesting for me. And then, in the end, I would ask six specific questions about their cooking habits and say, I think this is what you need to buy. And they would say, okay, and we'll be done. So you're spending 80 to 90% of your time with the customer connecting, building rapport, 10 to 20% really trying to investigate what you feel are their needs. And then by having this high level of rapport, you're able to be a little bit more suggestive at the end in terms of what they should get. Ideally, 95 and 5. Rapport, it's not like I'm asking them about things that I think they would be want to talk about. I'm just asking about things that I want to learn about. So I met one customer who was early and she gave me a gift. She was the wealthiest person I knew. And I learned like she was the wealthiest, most caring, nice person. And I think I had a shift in my mind. I was like, oh my God, this, you can be really wealthy and really wonderful human being. And she lived that. I had a number of customers. My first, the only employer was a customer of mine. The people who led to my real estate career was a couple that I met. And I just asked them about their life. And they told me this bizarre reality that did not exist in most people's thinking. And I just kept asking questions. And then in the end, it took me three minutes. They spent several thousand dollars and we moved on with our lives. But they changed my life because I wasn't talking about the knives. I think that's a great insight for people to be able to have is just to make sure that they're, they are doing that work with uh, connecting and, and rapport building. Can you remember any of the specific questions that you would ask that pertained to finding out their needs and what you were going to recommend they order? Yeah. So I would ask how they cook. I would ask if they eat meat, right? I would ask when they entertain how many people they would have over. I would ask, uh, you know, kind of understanding you know, would you rather have something you don't use that often, but you would, you know, you want to have a complete deal, you know, just basic stuff. I'm, you know, I don't think I was the best person at sales, but in my mind, it was a way for me to narrow down what to recommend. And then, so I, later in my career, I just stopped doing the drop down method. And maybe it was the wrong way to go, but for me, it was perfect because I didn't waste time. Could I have sold them something bigger if I asked 
having to say no seven times earlier, maybe. But my point was, is I wanted to see those customers when I serviced them and not have half of the knives be dusty. If that right. Yeah. Yeah. Because cool. then they trusted and then they bought for other reasons for friends or gifts, or whatever. And yeah. Cool. I just got cool. bored selling knives, Dan. Does that make sense? <laughs> well, once you got bored, Tim, tell us a little bit about your journey after Cutco. Well, so in seeing out of a thousand people, two thousand people, however many over that time, I've met a lot of people who were happy and didn't make a lot of money. I've met a lot of people who were happy, who were unhappy and did not make a lot of money. I've met a lot of people who were making a lot of money and were really unhappy. That was a big chunk. And then sometimes I met people who made a lot of money and were really happy. Right. And that's where I really listened. And I came in and I just met this couple. And I asked them, you know, they just seemed so laid back. They had several kids. They've been married for 40 years. You know, all those kind of things that I would envision I would want. And I asked them, what did they do? And they said that, oh, we just own 40, 50 houses, you know, that we bought it around this area and we rent them for the last, whatever, 30 years. And then we talked a little bit more. And that's where I learned that most people work through end of May, maybe April, just to pay their taxes, right? And then the guy basically said, blah, 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 and I don't pay any taxes. And I said, oh my gosh, that's incredible. He basically said, when I would drive my wife to appointments, I would read the tax book. Not the book about taxes, not some taxes for dummies, but the actual tax code. And he said, the book tells you 15 pages, what you can do if you have a job. And then there's 400 pages of what you can do to help the government. And they will help you by reducing your tax liability. And I was like, that's fascinating. In Russia, where I grew up, the government built housing, right? That was their job. And the housing is not great. In America, the government does not want to build housing. So they incentivize people who provide, build, and offer housing to people. Same with gas and same with several other areas. So then I started kind of narrowing down and seeing what could I do, where could I start as a, then, I don't know, 22-year-old. And we started with single-family homes by buying, renovating, and renting, providing housing to families at that time. It was the most incredible time you could have started. It was 2007, eight. Right, right as the whole housing collapse. So right. we got extremely lucky in that time, which sped up our timeline. And so how did it unfold over those years? Like you started out with your first single family home and tell us more about how that unfolded. Well, what happened is, and just be an example, we, my wife and I now, uh, then we're going to get engaged. So we saved the money for an engagement ring. And then, you know, as learning for the university, I got into some of the Kiyosaki books and, you know, all of his cash flow quadrants and his ideas. And this idea of buying assets that pay for your liabilities really clicked. That I could buy something that will then pay for what I want that's not financially good decision necessarily. So instead of taking the money we saved to buy the ring, we took our credit card and did one of those 0% offers for two years and bought a ring with a credit card offer. Then we took the money that we saved and we bought our first house. It, was, it cost $17,000. It cost eight thousand dollars to rehab it, so it had twenty five thousand in it, and then we rented it for five hundred bucks a month. Mm -hmm. Then we took all the rent and we paid off the ring. Right. When that was done, we still had the house. And then it's weird; it took six months to do it, but that something changes in your brain when you understand that idea of passive income. So and then, then honestly, if you can sell knives 
that are really relatively expensive by most people's standards to somebody who's not expecting to buy them and then ask them for their friends, call them on the phone, set up that appointment, do it again and build a career on it. You can do pretty much amazingly in any area of life. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. So then we just applied a lot of those skills in that area and uh, built our portfolio from there. Wow. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And can you share like what type of amount of holdings you, you guys have now in terms of number of units? Like, is that something we got to, to sure. We got to about 10 houses. And then I met this couple at an event that were talking about investing in mobile home parks. And they got to 100 houses before they started investing in mobile home parks. So I asked them, hey, if there's one thing you would have changed, what would you do? And they said, we would not have gotten 100 houses. We would have done it sooner. So then we started looking at how can we grow, not wanting to own you know two or three hundred houses, and we found this space. And uh, through finding properties like that and trying to provide housing for people there, we now serve about five or six hundred families. That's our the core of our business for my wife and I. Oh, that's awesome! Fantastic. So yeah. your primary source of income for at least the last eight or ten years has been just through your real estate holdings. You held a job very, very temporarily, I understand, you know, in the early stages of this, but it, you're essentially retired, financially independent, however you want to put it. Sure. And you're how old right now, Tim? I am going to be 36 in June. Yeah. yeah. So we, we set a goal by Hal's Miracle Equation to achieve our retirement, I guess, by age 30. And it happened about two weeks before. And honestly, just out of not knowing what to do next. That was the only thing. It's like, hey, let's figure this out and then we'll figure out what to do next. Yeah. Awesome. Amazing. What advice would you have for anybody who wants to get on a track of building their real estate holdings? What steps would you have people take right away? Specifically, if somebody wants to get started in real estate, it's kind of like getting started in Cutco, right? If you're selling Cutco, there's probably six, seven, eight things you need to do well. You'd be able to manage your calendar, get an appointment, you know, be on the phone, all those kind of things, whatever. Same with real estate. So, so there are several different steps. You have to decide, are you going to do everything yourself? Or are you going to be part of a team and just do one thing extremely well? So that's your first choice. If you are going to do one thing, find the best team, educate yourself, work for free, get better. And just like in the words of Jim Rohn, success is something you attract by the person you become, right? So if you get good enough, if you're good enough to play in the NBA, guess what? They'll find you. So same there. If you're going to do everything on your own, then it's going to take more time because it's kind of like you can't really do the whole thing until you got all the pieces down. Mm-hmm. That's okay. If you can do that, just start knocking them off. Find the best person to learn from, fly out, beg them, shadow, you know, do stuff for free. And with some luck and good timing over time, you'll be good. So if somebody wants to learn the ways of doing this without having significant dollars to bring to the table, do you recommend Robert Kiyosaki's books? You know, what, what, what resources do you recommend people look into? Yeah. Robert Kiyosaki's books would be step one. If you're interested, then you can look at what's, what verticals you want to get to. I mean, honestly, Dan, all of these things are not as interesting to me because with Google, there's really no reason why information is not the bottleneck. I think it's a fascinating conversation to what is the bottleneck right now whether that's you know, desire, ability, discipline, the why, or whether financial independence is really overrated. So I think I can make an argument for that. Hmm. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing with Acton School of Business, because I'm interested in hearing more about that as well. Sure. Uh, so t- tell us how you got into it and some of the things you're doing now. So when I moved to the States, that's why it's, I think it's important to, to see other people who have done well. And it, it can click just subconsciously that you can do the same, which is why I appreciate the podcast that you, know, that you put together. I remember reading a book, I think it's called Founder Stories or something like that. Jessica Levinston wrote it. And there was a story about Max Levchin, who was the founder of PayPal. Uh, he was a co-founder of PayPal. And he was this Ukrainian guy that immigrated about the same age and was able to have this amazing career. And he was kind of you know geeky, and um, I was a little bit too. So when I, when I read about that, I was like, hey, you know what? This is something that I can do. And this whole world of San Francisco opened up to me and, and uh, you know, thinking of, oh my gosh, technology, reading all the books. And so then I did the same thing then. I uh, found somebody. I asked them if it was okay for me to come help. And then I flew out across the country and uh, I started helping. So, and, I, and I've made friends with some people in the Valley and kind of uh, the tech sector, which is where I thought I wanted to, to go. So then for the next several years, I would fly out and I would help putting together this event. And I did a great job helping. I mean, I worked my butt off to make sure it went super smooth for no pay. What my reward was is I was able to meet some incredible people in the industry and ask them all of these questions. Because my thought was, right, they have my answers. They have the answers for me of what blah, blah, blah means. So... I probably talked to five or six you know, billionaires that are really famous people and asked them, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Same questions I asked my Cutco customers. And what I learned was majority of them had no idea why they were doing what they were doing. They were just doing it for 10 years or there was clear reasons why they were doing it, but they were so subconsciously obvious to me. Like these people were still competing. You know, the people were worth a billion dollars, but they want to be richer than the next guy. And I'm like, that's not, I don't care about that at all. So then I kind of had this realization that the, any of the answers to any of the questions you have really are on the inside and not somewhere else. And you really don't need to chase them. And nor is anybody can give you any answers that pertain to you. They'll be the answers they have for their life. That's why this whole interview was, uh, is, you know, suspect with me sharing any kind of advice because it's only valid for me. The reason I say that is because I found a really beautiful and comfortable place with this acting school of business. I wish I would have found it earlier when I was building my career. It's a school uh, that is founded by Jeff Sandifer uh, and a few other teachers out of UT. They basically teach in a Socratic manner. That means they don't answer any questions. Everything is a discussion among the students. The program has been ranked the most competitive MBA program in the country for the last, I don't remember, six, seven, eight years, maybe 10, and the best administered by the staff. So we have some of the most amazing Olympic athletes, Navy SEALs, uh, and really competitive business women and men who come to learn. And all I get to do is ask them questions and listen. Hmm. It's heaven for me. That's really something that I've been involved in for the last couple of years. I absolutely loved. And it was such a contrast to this idea that you know, somebody else has the answers for you. Or I have anything that I can actually tell them. And I've learned through experience that things that I'm telling them are not nearly as valuable as when they ask themselves the question or somebody else asks themselves the question and they ponder about it. Hmm. Does that make sense? 
Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Don't have to fly anywhere, it turns out, Dan. So, <laughs> yeah, so I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it. It's been beautiful. In the first year, when I won this award, which at the moment I didn't think I deserved, the reason was is that the people who came to class, at least the way that they've explained it, were scared more of my classes than other people's classes. So they worked <laughs> harder, which had nothing to do with my teaching ability. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, can you share any of the fascinating conversations that have sort of emanated in these, uh, in these classes? Yeah. So I teach three different types of classes, class on customers, class on growth, uh, class on operations, for example. Operations seems to be a difficult case for most people because it's like, how do you get things from A to B? How do you connect sales and production? Some people just want to sell. They want to sell a limited amount as fast as possible. And then somebody else has to build it. And there's always a tension between those two things. So that's a fascinating discussion. Most people definitely gravitate to one or the other. And then can you be in the middle of those and connect them? So I have my own kind of framework that I came up with. And you basically first thing is a computer. If humans did not matter, what is mathematically the most efficient thing to do? And then you analyze that against how is that actually going to work in the, in, the, in the real world? What are the implications? If you put yourself in the shoes of your customer, whoever that person is, how are they going to feel? based on what you're trying to propose. And I learn more than the students every time, which is why it's a, ri- a ridiculous investment, uh, return on the investment. Mm. So, yeah. Well, yeah. It sounds uh, really fun and interesting. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. And that's why it's fun, because the kids are going for pretty much the same thing through Acton Academy. Yeah, the kids who are doing the elementary school program in Acton? Go yeah, through K-12. I, I guess first through 12. Yes. So they're starting not in college, but they're starting from the very beginning. Right. Without anybody telling them, here's what it is, but really asking them, well, what do you think? Yeah. And the first Acton Academy was there in Austin? Yes. yes. Is it all over the US now? It's all over the world. I think there's 150, 200 locations. I don't know exactly, but they're growing quite, yeah, quite rapidly. I think there's five or six or seven in Austin at this point. So yeah, but it's a, uh, it's exactly what I would have wanted when I was a kid is to follow my own curiosity. Yeah. Really cool. So it seems like you've been able to, to have these very deep conversations, whether it be with, you know, people in the Silicon Valley that you got yourself around, whether it be with people, uh, you know, in your other circles or students at Acton, you and I have been a part of groups at front row dads where we've had some pretty deep conversations reflecting on those conversations, Tim, are there things that you wish that more people in the world knew or understood? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a first part of your life when you are trying to find a way, right? A way to get what you want, a way to succeed, a way to whatever. And as you're getting more and more successful, you think, to you, it's the way. It is the way how what works for you. And you're excited to share with your wife, with your spouse, with your, you know, whoever. And then sometimes it works. And then at a certain point, you think when you get to a certain part, you're like, okay, well, this is the way. How come I don't have everything that I want? Or how come everything is not perfect? And then you realize, oh, this is just a way. This worked for me, but it's only one way. And that opens up this understanding, which was incredible in active school business. These are some of the most successful 
people who build billion dollar companies that sit down and genuinely ask the question, not because they know the answer, they think they know the answer and they want to get you there, but really because they want to learn. So I think there's a good balance between going after what you want, but having this mind that, you know, as soon as you are sure you want to be right, you're probably afraid. You're probably afraid and you're protecting yourself. And that's why you want to be right. You want to yeah. argue about it. You want to prove it. Well, what if the opposite was true? What if the completely opposite of what you were saying was true? And that opens up this whole other path of, huh, I think most people, this is why Cutco has been so valuable for me. It's a part-time job. So you don't get too busy running around without ever having time to think or reflect on what you're doing and ask yourself any questions or learn other ideas. That's why it's been so incredible for me because I can go make full-time pay and a part-time kind of a you know schedule and then learn. So that I don't know if that answers your question directly. And the second thing is I coach basketball now. I got to play basketball a couple of years professionally and that was a big dream of mine and I was able to achieve it and and there's such a kind of a dilemma is that everybody who starts to play sports wants to win. The only way you really can win if you stop focusing on winning and you start focusing on the process, on your approach mm -hmm. to when you play, when you practice, any of that. And then winning comes as just like a benefit. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, and more often, depending on your career, it comes as a benefit of your approach. So most of us think we'll be so happy once we get something over there or somebody else can give it to us or that happens. It's not true. Financial independence will give you time, but nothing else. It actually is way harder to figure out what you want to do with your life when you can do anything you want. Hmm. Interesting for sure. Yeah. What is something, Tim, that you feel like you wish most people would do that would help move their lives along in a, in a, you know, more towards what they want, more towards what their lives could be. Ask themselves why they want what they want and find another person who is willing to have that discussion. Just like Jim Rohn says, right? When why gets bigger, how gets easier. Mm -hmm. Most of the times, once you figure out the why, you don't actually need to do the thing. Yeah, I think if we all had people in our life that would be able to have those kinds of deep philosophical conversations with us about why we're doing what we're doing, it can give us all a lot stronger motivations to take the actions we want, or in some cases, it can help steer us in a completely different path altogether. So it will, it might unplug you from the matrix. Yeah. That's a I deep, was just doing more. Yeah. deep, deep insight. Yeah. Tim, how do you think you could see the world being a better place? Here's my thought. I mean, I can really, I haven't dove into history that much. But so I can kind of see several generations, right? My parents, my grandparents. And this is how it seems to me, right? Our grandparents made huge sacrifices, worked and didn't ask any questions, didn't talk about their feelings, didn't even feel their feelings because they were in a state of survival, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe even in America, then spoiled the next generation because we just want our kids to have a better life than we did, right? So then our parents came along. And they were just in this mode. Everything was kind of more easy. It's simple. And they kind of still, okay, I'm going to go to work. But, you know, this is not life or death situation. Then we grew up and we saw our parents maybe working their whole life without really asking why. 
not being necessarily always super happy about it. And, you know, but then there's no real danger. Like we're in, you know, most of us are not starving. And then we're here and that's what I'm a very early millennial and millennials get so much flack, right? For being, you know, lazy or they don't want to work and all this stuff. And then I'm like, okay, what if the opposite was true? What if we didn't need to work really hard? What if really this point being happy and following, you know, your, you know, your passion is actually beautifully wonderful. And what if that exposes actually something to us is that most of the time we're doing things we don't want to do because we think we need to protect ourselves from some kind of danger that maybe doesn't really exist. You know, so now I think the world has this next chapter of opportunity of kind of looking, how can we find our area of genius, which is when the time flies by and you get more energy when you're done going through it. What is an activity that you do when the time flies, you can't count it, and you are more energized when you're done? And then can you spend most of your time in that area? I think our grandparents, parents, generations before has allowed us this opportunity, at least in America, to even ask these questions. And I think that's the beautiful part of this next generation is that, oh my God, if you actually put people in a place where they love doing what they do and they became amazing at it, what would happen with the world next? I think it's fascinating to see. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Just to think about that idea of what is the activity that when you're doing it, time flies. And when you're done doing it, you have more energy than you had before you started. That's a, a great thought for people to ponder as we uh, wrap this up here today, Tim. I think that people can really think about that one. And that's a, that's a cool cool thought yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well, that's what I ask myself. Yeah. Well, Tim, from your own personal perspective, what most excites you about the future? My wife, Melissa, and I have four kids. This is what's, it's taken me a while, right? It's what, six years now? Uh, since when I was able to do anything I wanted to do, then I decided to take time off and I spent from 27 to 32, I took five years off to spend uh, time with my kids. It was an incredible investment. The best choice uh, I've ever made, uh, besides for marrying my wife, that was her idea. Then I started to figure out, okay, what's next? And for me, it's really aligning the genius zone. And then I identified what it is for me. Then I had to let go of a lot of beliefs that maybe limited me in a sense that why was, why was that not okay? I love having conversations with people. I love helping people achieve their dreams. I don't have to make money from it. I just love the result that it makes in the world. And so now I'm trying to figure out what are the ways uh, that I can do that. And uh, there are ways to do that for business, business teaching and coaching or actual business. There are ways to do it for basketball. And I'm setting up my life in a way where I am spending all of my time, working time in my genius zone or as much as I can. And then giving opportunities to other people to do their genius work in areas that I'm not very good at. So to actually align that idea with my calendar is what the process that I'm in now. Uh, and that's really exciting because then I get to literally live heaven on earth. Wow. Well, that's such a great concept, Tim, of thinking about how can we be spending our time in our genius zone. I think anybody, if they think deeply enough, can figure out what that genius zone really is for them and uh, pondering how can we be able to spend more of our time in that space so that, as you said, we can live heaven on earth 
That's very, very inspiring. Uh, I love that. And I think that's a great point for us to leave for our audience today. Tim, as I said uh, earlier, I've found you to be one of the more fascinating people I've ever met. I think it's cool just talking to you and uh, getting to banter about different things, having you ask challenging and interesting questions. It's always been really fun and I've enjoyed that. Glad to have been able to get to know you and uh, grateful for you to have shared some time on the podcast today. So thanks very much. Thank you so much, Dan. And I wanted to say, you know, besides for everybody who affected me in my career, for you personally, I haven't met you until a few years back, but you've impacted so much the people that have made impact in my life directly. And I've always heard the name. I've always heard Hal and John and a lot of other people credit a lot of their growth to you. So it was, it was beautiful to meet you because it's kind of like one step up. So any kind of effect that I might have would not have happened without Jeremy Couch, who hired me and mentored me and put gas in my car and just uh, you know treated me like his brother, basically has like his little brother. So thank you so much, Dan. Thanks a lot, Tim. I, I really appreciate it. That's awesome. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you for making the difference, Dan. Well, everyone, you can see why I have always found Tim Nikolaev to be one of the more interesting human beings that I know. Some really compelling and fascinating concepts that came out of this conversation. I like where he shared early on that, you know, there were two beliefs instilled in him, I believe he said by his mom, to be the best at whatever it is you do and to copy success, look for successful people, study what they're doing and model the beliefs, the actions of successful people. Tim made an effort to get himself into the world of very successful people in Cutco. Tim made an effort to get himself into the world of very successful people in the Silicon Valley tech community later in his career, was exposed to some very amazing and interesting people, and that made a huge difference in his success. I like where he also shared the four types of people and One of them was the people who are doing well financially and they're happy. They have that combination of the outward success and the inner success and finding people who are like that, that you can model in your life. A really interesting point Tim made is that most of the answers for the things we want in our lives, they're already on the inside. And how can we put ourselves in in situations where we're having the kinds of conversations with people in our lives? who are challenging us to ask us why we want what we want, why are you doing what you're doing, and being able to really get into those kinds of conversations with others to help us figure out right, what are our true passions, what is our genius zone. Tim suggested that we all try to find the activity in our life that when we do it, time flies, and when we're done with it, we have more energy than we had before. What is that for you? And what is your genius zone? How can you spend more time in your genius zone? Lots of stuff to think about. I hope you guys got some good insights from hearing Tim Nikolaev today and getting to know him. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast. Have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days for our next story about changing lives.